Our first sponsor for episode number 23 of Does Not Compute is Hired. Everyone knows how much of a pain it can be to find a new job, but Hired makes that process way easier and way simpler. Just sign up for Hired and they'll help you find your new job at one of their more than 3,000 partner companies. These companies are looking for designers and developers to fill full-time and contract positions in 13 of the major tech hubs across North America and Europe. Hired is completely free, and every interview request lists salary and equity up front to help you figure out which jobs you want to pursue. Once you've accepted a new job with one of these awesome companies, Hired will give you $1,000 just to say thanks for using them. To make things even better, you can sign up at Hired.com slash DoesNotCompute to be eligible for a $2,000 thank you bonus instead. Our thanks to Hired for sponsoring the show. Be sure to check them out today at Hired.com slash DoesNotCompute to get started finding your next job. Our second sponsor today is Rollbar. Rollbar helps make error tracking really simple. If you have a website, web app, or native app, you should definitely be checking these folks out. They have libraries and integrations available for just about every language and framework out there, and it usually takes less than 10 minutes to start tracking real production errors and deployments. Using a real error tracking system will save yourself and your users a ton of headache. I'm sure we're all familiar with digging through logs or relying on user-reported errors. It gets very messy very quick. With Rollbar, all your errors are nicely tracked in one place, and you'll be able to start fixing them before users even know anything's wrong. They've got some huge customers like Heroku, Twilio, Kayak, Instacart, Zendesk, and Twitch, so you know they're able to handle real, scaled production demands. If you sign up at rollbar.com DNC, they'll give you 90 days of their bootstrap plan for free. That's up to 300,000 events tracked, totally free. Make sure to check out Rollbar today. I've been having a pretty pretty okay week so far. Yeah, that sounds better than usual. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it's because I've been writing many more tests, more tests than I normally write, and it leads to better things, you know? Have you just been writing more tests because of your sticky note that tells you to write more tests, or is there something else that brought that on? Partly. Um, I've been writing more tests because I've been working on things that I think are more complicated, or at least more complicated, more difficult for me to wrap my head around. Uh, and so writing those tests does a couple of different things. Number one, it allows me to actually understand what I'm doing or what I need to do. And number two, it allows me to feel better about the code that I wrote to reach that conclusion or implement that feature. Um, it gives me more confidence, I guess. Yeah, I've always found that to be one of the biggest benefits of testing is that once you do have a solid test suite, you can just kind of rely on that for a lot of things. For open source stuff, it makes merging pull requests way easier because you know if the tests pass and if they wrote tests for their new feature, you know that it's going to work. Yeah, definitely. And the, the stuff that I've been running tests for, uh, the last few days at least, um, are they're for things that I've never done before or problems that I've never had to solve before. Uh, and so... I mean, having the tests are nice, so that way when you change code later on, you know, you can tell if you accidentally broke something. But for me, the most beneficial piece of this was being able to um, write tests as I go and have it actually inform how I'm implementing this feature. You know, people always talk about like TDD or whatever, um, but I, I've found it to be really helpful in helping me actually solve the problem. 
I think one of the biggest issues with writing tests is just getting started writing tests. Um, for me, before I wrote tests frequently, it always kind of felt like a bit of a, I, I guess it, it felt intimidating because you have to learn an entirely new framework generally in the Rails case, something like Minitest or RSpec or maybe Jasmine or Mocha for, for JavaScript. But there's there's a bunch of things that you have to learn and it's like, I just want to get my work done and this is going to slow me down. But I have, I've never found that to actually be the case in practice. When I first started writing tests, I was definitely very unproductive because I spent way too much time thinking about what to actually test or what not to test. I ended up doing lots of research and I found a book called What Do I Test? I'm pretty sure that's what it's called. And I'll have to put this in the show notes. I don't remember the author's name or anything, but he basically just talks through what he approaches or how he approached writing tests and what he actually tests while he's working on Rails apps. And for me, that was pretty, uh, pretty useful. But that was that was the biggest barrier barrier to entry for me was I wasn't sure what to test and what not to test or even how to go about figuring that out. And maybe my problem was I was definitely thinking about it too much or worrying about it too much instead of just jumping in and doing something. And that seems to be something that I do a lot is instead of just getting my feet wet, I'll think too much ahead of time. I've kind of had the opposite problem at times where I tend to just jump into things and not just in programming, I guess in my life too, where I just kind of <laughs> do stuff because I decide that's the thing I need to do and then I do it. So for me, it was never a problem with, I don't know where to start with testing. It was more like a, I'm not sure the benefits of testing will outweigh the time it's going to take me to get spun up and actually write all these tests. It just doesn't work that way. T testing gives you so many benefits. It really, really does that it's worth it in almost every single scenario I can think of. Well, I hear that argument a lot. And I know we've mentioned it before where if you're doing client work, it's almost hard to justify to the clients why you have to write tests or why it would take longer to include that phase of the project. But it's no different than anything else. I mean, when you first learn a new language, it's going to take you more time to be as productive as you are, right? So if you're proficient in JavaScript and you jump to Ruby, it's going to take you a little bit more time to be as productive as you are in JavaScript. And I guess jumping to testing is no different than that. Once you once you get the basic concepts down, once you have it under your belt, you can just jump into new projects and be productive quickly because you're familiar with it, right? And I think I was making the mistake of thinking that I would always be that unproductive uh, if I'm adding tests into the equation, which you know obviously is not the case because now I'm becoming a lot faster. So you're talking about learning something and then that makes you better at it more quickly in other languages and with other tools. And I think that's a really great point. Um, that's something that I've personally been experiencing a lot over the last two weeks. In the last two weeks, I have shipped code in Ruby, PHP, Objective-C, Python, C-sharp, JavaScript, Shopify's liquid templating language, Go, and Java. It's a lot of languages for two weeks. And several of them I had either no experience or very little experience with before. So I was a little bit I was a little bit scared going into that because that was a it's a pretty tight deadline to update all these things. And it was a bunch of things that I wasn't familiar with. That is a whole heap of things, Paul. I think that maybe I've written 
four of those languages, one being the Shopify templating language. So what was really interesting for me, though, is that as I worked on these things, as I did the changes I need to do in each one of these languages, I realized that even when I didn't know the language, because I knew the terminology of what I was trying to accomplish in any programming language, it was really easy to figure out not only just how to do it, but also how to do it in a pretty idiomatic way. Because once you know that you're trying to, for example, base64 encode something, it's really easy to find out the most idiomatic way to base64 encode something in any given language. It's just a problem of knowing that terminology in the first place and why you would need to do that. So you would say that's that's pretty close to your one-way trick of being able to pick something new up quickly is to have done it before in another language? I think to a degree. I I would maybe phrase it more like words are really important and the meanings of words are really important. So even when you're writing in a programming language, understanding what words exist in the world of programming and knowing how to apply them to any language is the major thing. Because once you know what the available words are, then you can figure out the exact syntax in any language. Easy. It's That's not a problem. That is a great point. That is a really, really good point. That's something that I've made a conscious decision a while back to do is under, really understand terminology, uh, especially around programming. And I found that that allows me to fix bugs a lot faster. Say, for example, you're you're chugging along, you're writing some code, and then suddenly you get you get a stack trace, right? And every stack trace has very specific errors, right? That's what computers do. They they just spit out this is what's wrong and this is where it went wrong, right? So instead of kind of glossing over the stack trace for something that might clue me in, what I what I do is I look at the actual error. And I Google that and I, and I think to myself, what does this actually mean? What is really going on here? What's the computer telling me? As opposed to just copying and pasting random words that I think might be useful and tossing into Google, right? And I find that that helps me so, so much more than just blindly Googling because now I understand what happened and I understand how to fix it next time. I think my favorite part of that example is that it proves itself because... The first time I saw a stack trace, I had no idea what was happening. And it just looked like the computer had exploded and my mom was going to get mad at me. <laughs> it looked it looked really bad. And knowing that terminology, knowing that a stack trace exists and knowing what a stack trace might kind of look like in any given language, that's already gives you a massive advantage in learning any language you want. Because pretty much every language is going to have errors. So when you can go into any language and then instantly see, oh, okay, I've gotten an error. What's the useful part of that? And then paste that into Google. That's super powerful for learning. It's a massive, massively important tool. A really great resource that I'm going to have to throw into the show notes would be this article entitled Errors by Tom Mackwright. Um, if you've never heard of Tom Mackwright before, he works for Mapbox and he does some really awesome stuff and he has a really awesome blog that you should check out. And in this article, he talks about knowing how to diagnose the differences between the errors. For example, the second paragraph is compile versus runtime errors. And so he breaks down the difference between a compile error versus a runtime error, which is great. It's stuff that you really need to know. He also takes time to actually explain what things are like what's a syntax error, 
what's a reference error, what's a type error, what's a range error, for example. And he goes through and he walks through all of these and he gives you a code snippet and the output of that. So he actually shows you how you would trigger a certain type of error in JavaScript. And this is something that I didn't know for a long time. And to some extent, I still need to work on actually understanding, internalizing this information. But if you're new to JavaScript or new to programming in general and new to deciphering errors, this article will help you out a lot. Yeah, and I think, again, what's really important about that example is that it showcases, again, just how important these words are to know. You said type error. I wouldn't even know what that was if I weren't a programmer. What's a type? What does that mean? And why is it erroring? But the fact that I know what a type is means that any language I work in that has a concept of types, any object-oriented programming language, will instantly make a ton more sense to me than someone who doesn't have that concept. So learning what these terms are and what they mean is massive, not for JavaScript, not for Ruby, not for Python, but it's just massive for learning. Words empower us to think. Because if we don't have a word for a concept, and I, I guess this is getting more into philosophy now almost, but if we don't have a word for a concept, then we actually can't think about that concept in most cases. And I know I keep I keep talking about this stupid post-it note that I have on my iMac now that's all bent up and tattered. I love that post-it. Can you take a picture of that post-it note and put it in the show notes for this episode? <laughs> I'll take a picture of my bent up post-it note because I keep um, knocking it off and it gets bent and everything. That can be our super train. <laughs> Just a po- my post-it note, my raggedy blue post-it note on my iMac. Definitely. One thing that I keep continuing to struggle with is just being in a rush, being in a hurry all the time. And I find I find that when I'm in a hurry, I see things like stack traces and errors, and I do things like grab text and paste it into Google and just try to find the first stack overflow post that will solve my error, right? But again, the third point on my post-it note is don't try to be fast. Uh, and in looking at these error examples, for example, uh, reference error A is not defined. I remember when I was learning how to program and I guess to some extent I still do this, I'll look at reference error and be like, oh crap. And I'll go back right, I'll go right back to the code and start looking around where the second half of the error that the computer is showing me is saying this is not defined. It's giving me the answer, right? So if I were just to slow down a little bit and pay more attention to what the computer actually is saying, the whole sentence, not just pieces of it, I'll have the answer right there. Like, uh, Paul, you're talking about type error. Someone that might not know what a type error is, his example gives you the full output of what uh, the computer's saying. And it says type error, object zero has no method to uppercase. And his example in this case is trying to use the to uppercase method in JavaScript on a number. And so it's throwing a type error, right? Because you can't uppercase a number. It's not a string. Uh, and so I just know myself and I know that I'll try to be really quick and I'll jump into Google before actually reading the full sentence, before reading the full error, right? And I'll I'll just end up wasting time. Yeah, and I guess this kind of comes back to what we talked about last week with the whole problem of urgency, where when you feel that everything is super critical, when you feel that everything has to be done yesterday, that just really results in you being less productive because you're trying to rush and you're taking shortcuts and you're in the end just wasting your own time and it's it's understandable i'm not saying anyone who feels like this is necessarily at fault because there are a lot of different reasons that people can think 
that their situation is urgent, oftentimes imposed on them by their employer. And that's unfortunate. But I think being able to recognize that is an important step to being able to figure out ways around it. That's true. And at the beginning of this very episode, I mentioned that I was feeling better and I was having a better week. And I think that's a direct result of sleeping more and not feeling as rushed, right? Uh, So this week, I haven't felt as rushed. And in turn, I've spent more time writing tests, uh, which has in turn made me more productive. It's kind of funny how all of that works, right? The things that I don't do when I'm stressed out ends up hindering me, you know? And when I'm feeling better, the things that I do, like sleeping more and writing more tests, end up making me more productive. Yeah, I, I mean, that's that's definitely the same for me. When I'm feeling happier, even if that means spending less time working, I actually get more done. It, it's counterintuitive, for sure. I'm not going to dispute that. But that actually, that seems to be the case. Like, when I focus on me as a human being, instead of me as someone who works for a company, my life is just so much better. And it sounds like you're kind of saying a similar thing. Yeah, and I have a really bad uh, problem with being workaholic and my mind's always going. Uh, I don't sleep very much because I'm always thinking. Uh, and also I can I can go to bed at one o'clock and wake up at six. Like it doesn't matter how late I stay up, I will wake up at six o'clock. But... The more time that I actually do things that I enjoy doing, I find that I'm actually productive during the day at work, which like you said, sounds kind of intuitive, right? Because I'm technically working less. I think that the whole being happy personally, being okay with how you're doing personally, it goes a long way to uh, affecting the quality of your work that you're doing every day. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's so important. All righty. So this is quite the tone shift. But uh, we actually wanted to talk about something that is pretty, pretty nifty. Um, I found this earlier today, and it is a code pen called Animating the View Box. It was written by Louis Hobrex. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. It's actually an article on CodePen, like a blog post, that has embedded pens. So it's a bunch of different examples here, and they're all explained with text. And kind of what he talks about here is the fact that SVG view boxes can be animated. And so the view box, for anybody who doesn't know, is a SVG property that defines the area of the SVG that is always going to be visible. It's just the part that always shows up and it will be there no matter what. What is super interesting about that is that in the article, he actually goes through animating this in different ways. So that allows you to actually act as if the view box were a camera in a three-dimensional environment. So you can zoom in and out and pan. So you get your X, Y, and Z coordinates all just by animating or changing that SVG view box property. It's got a bunch of great examples and they're all documented with JavaScript and you can see them live on the page, which is super cool. And I just thought this was awesome. It's such a, it's a very clever use of SVG. Is very clever. I would never have thought to do that. Never in a million years would I have thought to screw around with the view box and use it as a camera. That's really cool. And again, this we we keep mentioning this, but or at least I keep talking about it on Twitter. But I think like the web is such an amazing thing. You can do so many things with web technologies. It's incredible. All right. So this was a short little thing, but I just thought it was super awesome. So I wanted to make sure we talked about this. Uh, We'll have a link to it in show notes. Make sure you check this out. 
it's super, super cool. And definitely give Lewis a little thumbs up on Twitter or something like that, or a heart on CodePen even, uh, just to show him that he is doing pretty neat stuff there. Well, and I just noticed this, and I don't want anybody else to miss it, but on the Happy New Year animation, when you click on the present, it opens up and it shows Happy New Year. If you click on any of the text, it zooms in even farther, and there's the background is animated. That is awesome. Like, the end has people sledding down a hill. Yeah, this is pretty amazing. Wow. I did not notice that. That's incredible. I, yeah, I, it went right past me. Who would have thought to combine an SVG with, with Greensock and make this really cool thing? This is awesome. This is amazing. This is like a video game. Wow. Okay. Definitely check this out because this is even cooler than either of us realized. <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. Major, major props to Lewis. He just heard us discovering new worlds <laughs> in real time. All right, Sean. I think it's... <laughs> This is so great. I can't stop watching it. Okay. Sean. Yeah. I think we have one last thing to discuss. We promised it last week, and now it's not last week anymore. So uh, you were going to tell us a little bit about your experience with using an IDE for the first time. Yeah. I did use an IDE for the first time, and then I continued to use it for a few days after that. I even caused an uproar in the Slash Rocket uh, Slack channel. That was fun. So hold on a second. You're still currently using an IDE, correct? Uh, yes. Yeah, I used it all day today. And do you think that's going to continue? Maybe. Maybe. So there are a lot of things that I like about it, and there are some things I dislike about it. And I think what was causing me some heartache is I sit next to one of our other developers who is using Sublime Text and I keep looking at it and it looks so nice. He's using the material theme, which I use, and it just looks really nice and I wanted to use it. Maybe I can start with the cons so we can end on some happy pro notes for IDEs. Uh, but if you weren't aware, I was trying out the WebStorm and the RubyMine IDEs made by JetBrains. And I haven't had much of a chance to use WebStorm because I've been doing a lot of Ruby work lately. Um, so I spent most of my time in RubyMine. And the thing that I think bothers me the most about RubyMine or the JetBrains apps are their UIs. They're Java-based. Um, if you've never seen them, they are very full. There's icons everywhere. There's an icon to do. There's a button you can click. You can just point your mouse somewhere in the UI and click, and it'll do something. If you click enough buttons, it actually eventually writes all of Shakespeare. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt that. Now, for some people, that's not a bad thing. But for me, I'm, I'm used to such a clean UI that it can be really distracting. Um, and apart from that, the, the UI just feels really clunky. Some buttons you have to hover to make do things, and some buttons if you hover and then click too quickly, it'll do things you didn't want. And I noticed that on both my Retina machines, and interestingly enough, one day I worked, uh, I had my, my laptop plugged into an external monitor that is not Retina, and I didn't notice these issues, but I, on my Retina machines, I've noticed that the UI is pretty sluggish. Um, so if you used Atom when it first came out and you had a Retina computer, it was really terrible to scroll on because the text was just really janky. Um, most of the, the UI animations were really janky. And I noticed something similar with the JetBrains apps on my Retina machines. Uh, and they, they just seemed kind of sluggish. Right. When you scroll, the text is jumping. It's not smooth, which I'm used to. 
And, you know, that's a minor nitpick. It doesn't really have much to do with the IDE, like how it functions, but it was something that was bothering me anyway. I also noticed that, especially today, uh, I ended up having to quit RubyMine and restart it a couple of times because it was just being really slow. And on a fresh open, everything seemed great. Uh, it just, the more that I used it, the more tests I ran, it just seemed to slow down over time, which really kind of drove me crazy as well. I also decided to pop open Activity Monitor and see how it was doing in the RAM department. And uh, Paul, earlier I sent you a screenshot. It was using over two gigabytes, I want to say. I think it was maybe just under two, yeah, but something ridiculous like that. And then I sent you a screenshot back of my Sublime using 150 megs. It made me sad. Um, and I understand that Rubyman's doing a lot of things, you know, it's doing code, it's doing code audits and it's, uh, you know, I had an automatic test runner going and all that, but still on both machines that I was using it on, you know, I, I have an almost top of the line 2015 MacBook Pro and a brand new Retina iMac. So, you know, there shouldn't be anything going on where there would be performance issues. Uh, they're pretty beefy machines. But aside from that, I mean, those are really all of my nitpicks. All of my nitpicks are based around look and feel, which maybe are negligible and, you know, things being slow. And to JetBrain's credit, you know, a couple of people were saying that there are some settings I could go in and tweak, but I just didn't have time. I didn't feel like I had enough time this week to go in and just mess with all my IDE settings. So everything I was running was completely stock. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing for me is that even if I like an IDE, I can't imagine having the time to actually dig deep and get the same domain knowledge of any IDE, no matter how good it is, that I already have with Sublime. Because I, I know Sublime inside and out. I know almost every keyboard shortcut. I am very familiar with all the syntax and all the config files and everything. It's very easy for me to work with and customize. So to me, the biggest loss seems like it would be there. Not necessarily that there's anything wrong with an IDE. It's just, it's just kind of the same reason I haven't switched to Atom. Right. I feel the same way about Sublime. It It's just big enough to do everything I needed to do, but it's just small enough for me to be able to memorize it quickly. And when I was using RubyMine, I made it to a point to memorize as many keyboard shortcuts as I could. And that made it okay. I'm still not as fast in RubyMine as I am in Sublime, but again, you know, I've only been using it for a week or so. So, all right, that was all the stuff you weren't super into. Which parts did you like? What are the advantages? Why should I switch? I'm not going to switch, but why, <laughs> why might I switch? Uh, so I think the coolest feature maybe was that you can command click on almost anything uh, in your code and it will jump to the definition no matter where it is. Uh, so I know that you can do that with Sublime and Vim, et cetera, et cetera, that you can jump to definition. But the way that RubyMine did it almost made it seem like magic. So you can actually hold down command and hover over any variable, anything really, and it will give you a little tooltip pop-up of where that is defined. And then if you command click on it, it opens the file in a new in a new tab. For example, in this Rails app that I'm working on, I'm using Minitest spec and I couldn't remember if I was defining the feature keyword or if that was coming from elsewhere or if it was a gem or anything like that. So I kind of clicked on it and it opened up the gem for me and went to the definition. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember now I installed this gem to have this available to me. I thought that was pretty cool. Another thing that I really liked were these these little icons that show up in the, in the gutter. Uh, so for Sublime, I use Sublime Linter. So I have my linting icons showing up and I also have 
Git sidebar, so I see all of my VCS stuff going on there. Uh, but with RubyMine, there are all these little icons that show up. Uh, some of them would be showing you that you overwrote a method elsewhere. And so if you clicked on that icon, it would take you to the method that you're overwriting. Or if your met the method you're working on now was overwritten somewhere else, it'll take you to the, the method that overwrote that. Um, or for, for example, if you're in a controller, there'd be another icon that showed up and you click on it, it actually takes you to the template for that action. And if you're in a template, likewise, you can click on the icon and it would take you to that controller action. Um, so just a lot of little convenience features, I think, are the things that I liked the most. And I think one of the, the coolest things I discovered today, actually, I had the automatic test runner going. Uh, and I learned the shortcut Shift-Control-R. And so if you're in a test file, you can either go to the top and hit Shift-Control-R and it will run all of the tests in that file. Or you can actually go inside of one test and hit that keyboard shortcut and it'll run that one test for you. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it was pretty useful. And there's another little icon. It, so it actually opens up a new panel and the panel will have a list of the tests with a color next to it if it's passing or failing. And then underneath, it actually shows you the test output. And on the side of that panel, there's a button you can click to have it run anytime you save a file. So you can edit the test, it'll rerun it. You can edit the model, it'll rerun it. You can edit a view, it'll rerun those tests for you. So I had that going pretty much the whole time when I was working on a few features. Every time I made a change, it would just go ahead and run all my tests again, which I had to admit was pretty handy. And like I said, it's not like that I can't do that. You know, you could use Guard or something else to automate your test running. But it was nice to kind of have it on the side of the ADD. There was no context switch, right? I didn't have to save and then have to open up terminal or hit another keyboard shortcut to open up to see the results. It was just all right there. That's one of the things about an IDE is that they generally don't do anything that you couldn't achieve otherwise. It's just they make those things more convenient for you, which is great. Um, so overall, what would you say your recommendation is? Yay or nay? Like if I'm I'm a developer and I'm, you know, using something like Sublime or Atom, do you think it's worth looking into maybe a more advanced IDE? <laughs> so my official answer is maybe, and I'll tell you why. For me, it has been very helpful the last week because I was I was kind of sick and it was harder for me to concentrate. And so I found that having a little extra firepower, having this IDE just do things for me without having to think about it, like having the auto test runner just running stuff for me, it was one less thing to think about. It helped me out because I had less brain activity going on uh, or less usable brain activity. And so I was able to put that actually towards writing the code. And maybe that's a terrible reason, but that's why I am really torn right now because there are certain there are certain conveniences that I will miss, like having all those icons in the gutter just like looking at a method and be like, oh, this is being overwritten or this is inheriting from somewhere else, right? Without having to just know that, I guess. That was really nice for me. Um, and then I guess one thing that I will miss if I were to switch away would be the debugger, how you can click in the gutter and you can attach a debugger to anything. So when I was writing tests, I would slap a debugger on my actual models and the test would pause, and I could assign watchers to the variables um, on my model, which that was super helpful. And then you can, um, it's a graphical interface, right? So by bug, I mean, obviously you can do the same thing, but it's a little more work to kind of dig through things. 
Whereas with the RubyMine debugger panel, it's all just right there. I click a couple of arrows and I'm inspecting, I'm inspecting an active record collection. You know, it's just super easy. To reiterate, I guess if you're if you're in a situation where maybe you're still new-ish to Rails or you're learning Rails and you feel like you need a little more firepower, go ahead and give it a try. Um, if you're someone like me that is really kind of put off by sluggishness in your applications, it might drive you crazy, but it it's worth trying anyway. And as for myself, I feel like I probably keep my subscription alive. I mean, it's, I think it's like $25 a month and you get access to any of the apps that they have. Or if you want to spend less, you can... I believe you can get one off or two off uh, apps. So if you just wanted WebStorm or just WebStorm or Remind, you can do that as well. I don't feel like I'd use them every day, but I certainly feel like they could come in handy for me. Thanks for listening to episode number 23 of Does Not Compute. Another big thanks to Rollbar for sponsoring today's episode. Anyone building applications, web or mobile, should take a look at their service. Rollbar makes it super easy to find and fix errors. They work with every major language and framework out there, and they also play nice with other services you love, like Slack, GitHub, and Jira. Go sign up at rollbar.com DNC, and they'll give you 90 days of their bootstrap plan for free. We also want to say thanks to Hired. Developers and designers don't need to look any further than Hired to find their next job. Whether you're looking for full-time or contract work, a huge public company or a tiny startup, Hired almost certainly has the job for you. It's totally free to sign up and find your new job, and they'll give you a $2,000 thank you bonus when you do find it if you sign up at Hired.com slash DoesNotCompute. Remember, Spec has an incredible Slack community with, as of this recording, over 3,800 members. You should definitely sign up and come say hi to Sean, myself, and a bunch of awesome Spec fans. You can sign up right now really easily just by heading over to Spec.fm slash Slack.